HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ancestry. You can savor your story in a whole new way with Ancestry DNA. With over 350 regions and two times the geographic detail of other DNA tests, Ancestry can connect you to the culture, cuisines, and traditions of your heritage in a deeper way. Learn more at Ancestry.com MTBE. That's MTBE as in meant to be eaten. This week, it's the season finale of Meet and Three. We're following up our episode about youth with a look at age and how aging affects life on farms and in kitchens. At the, the most basic level, we need people to grow food for a growing global population. The question of planning for retirement or old age as a cook It's almost one that doesn't exist bizarrely until it's too late. We also have a story about a food that might be older than you think. A recent archaeological finding might have crossfitters everywhere reevaluating their diets. Plus, a story about one of Atlanta's most historic and risque landmarks. There are dancers that have been there 20 and 30 years. Don't miss our season finale of Meat and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Quote unquote, Twitter roaster and author of Real Inequality, a book that examines the barriers African American, Asian American, and Latina slash Latino actors face in Hollywood and how they creatively challenge stereotypes. Sociologist Nancy Yuen studies the ways in which Asian Americans are represented or not in media. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Coral. So we should mention Nancy's joining us via Skype from Mexico right now, where she's on vacation. But um, where are you originally from? Hmm, that's a good question for Asian Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Always kind of tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, I am originally, I was born in Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan. And I immigrated to Southern California when I was five. So grew up in California mostly. And yeah, and so I consider myself 1.5 generation Chinese American. We're in Southern California. So I first immigrated to Long Beach um, and then pretty much grew up in kind of the Cerritos area. Now I'm, yeah, so in the suburbs, but I also spent a large portion of my life in Los Angeles because I went to UCLA, both for undergrad and grad school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, when people think of LA, they're always like, oh yeah, there's like a ton of different immigration populations, but on top of that, so I grew up in Southern California too, like there's all these sub neighborhoods of like different types of Chinese people. So how did you see Asian American culture change and its perception uh, growing up? 
Oh, wow. I think I grew up um, thinking that only like certain generations were speaking maybe Mandarin or Cantonese or whatever. But I think even recently when I was in the kind of San Gabriel area, like there's constant waves of immigrants. And so there's young people who are maybe bilingual who are 1.5, but they're also young immigrants who are um, who are first gen, who, you know, who just arrived. So I realized it's hard for me to tell by looking at someone whether, you know, what generation they are based on their ages. And yes, there's there's like little Taiwan, I think, in kind of the Roland Heights, Hacienda Heights area. Um, but overall, I, when I grew up in Long Beach, there were Southeast Asian um, refugee kids. And so, and then when I grew up in kind of the Cerritos area, there's, there's Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, Filipinos, um, South Asians. It's, it's definitely a pan-Asian American um, experience growing up in Southern California. Yeah, I grew up in Newport, which is next to Irvine. And there's kind of like, oh, you got to go to Garden Grove, or, or Garden Grove for Thai food, or you got to get like boba and Irvine. And there's all these like <laughs> different sub-neighborhoods. Um, and you're yes, now it's, it's a food it's a food a heaven for, for Asian <laughs> yeah, food it really for, sure, is. for sure like little India actually was in Artesia like one of the biggest you know um, Indian populations and I just grew up kind of taking for granted that I had such great access to food like I didn't even bother learning the names because I would just go to some restaurant and just kind of eat the buffet mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm, but totally. it was so authentic it was delicious yeah and so now you're teaching at Biola right Correct. So that's a that's another like a immigrant Mm -hmm. um, populated. I think traditionally white, but now there are a lot of Korean Americans who've moved in there. It's a suburb. It's a suburb of Los Angeles County. Mm -hmm. And so, as you're teaching um, this now growing immigrant student population, do you see the same? This is kind of a loaded question, but do you see the same kind of racism slash microaggressions that you experienced as a student? Unfortunately, yes. I think those things, even though Southern California is so diverse because it's a car culture, it's uh, we don't have a lot of public spaces where people interact um, on a daily basis. So I think that there's still a lot of ignorance about uh, people groups that look different from you. So I think microaggressions, I mean, in L.A., there's still kind of this kind of go back to your country rhetoric that happens. And I know that, yeah, that my Asian American students are still experience the kind of forever foreigner, where are you from? Where are you really from? Kind of questions mm-hmm. that, uh, that, they have, that even though all they are feeling is that, hey, we're Americans too. Right. And if anything, it's like these smaller minority populations are kind of taking over these neighborhoods and kind of defining the food culture and defining the just any culture of this neighborhood. And it's still funny to see that they're still seen as outsiders. Yeah, I think that when I did a documentary, actually, um, a while back, I, I interviewed a, a white, young white man who said that he was disturbed by the fact that there were so many businesses with just Chinese signs, right, which a lot of these restaurants, um, they, they just have the Chinese signage because their food is so kind of authentically just for the community that, uh, that there's still this kind of, um, well, there's this xenophobia that develops because of this this kind of uh, segregation, right, between food and um, and authentic uh, for the community kind of businesses. So that's definitely an issue. And food, you know, food is very close to a person's heart. So I think that a lot of times feeling kind of isolated from food restaurants can create this uh, this greater sense of xenophobia. Yeah, there's um, there's this NYU student who's doing this 
thesis, or at least it's like a little Instagram page that's called um, Your Yelp Review is Racist. And one of them is, one of the reviews says something like, oh, you know, the, the restaurant was wonderfully ethnic. And it makes me think of this, where it's like, if there is signage that is in, that is only in Chinese, shouldn't that be kind of like an exciting sign? Like, oh, this is a really authentically Sichuan restaurant or Cantonese restaurant. And isn't that, why isn't that enticing to someone, you know? I think that there's a lot of, um, so there's not just the signage, but the food itself, I think, is is pretty scary to people. Mm-hmm. I, I read the, the recent um, Crazy Rich Asians article that was in um, The Hollywood Reporter mentioned how the actors oftentimes are the only Asian actors on their sets. Hmm. So but then on this set, when they could they could go to the kind of night market and eat whatever, they didn't have to explain or worry about whether their co-cast members are going to be offended by the food or it's too spicy for them. They could just kind of be themselves and just enjoy the food and not have to worry about what somebody else thinks about the food that they're eating. <laughs> That's so bizarre. Um, so I'm just going to kind of backtrack a little bit. Um, I don't know if you've heard the podcast Still Processing. Um, it's from NPR, but they did a two-part episode on um, racism against Asian Americans and just kind of um, honestly just raising awareness and just saying like, look, this actually happens. And I'm going to have you explain some of these terms that they use, which one of them being model minority and code switching. Um, and also you talked about um, not being able to distinguish whether someone is one first generation, 1.5 or second, and what that all means. Because some people, it's even enough to be like, I, I didn't even know there's different types of Chinese people. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, okay, let's start with model minority. So this is the idea. So it's kind of complicated. I'm going to try to simplify it. The The idea that Asian Americans are, they've worked hard enough. So even if they came from, you know, nothing, that they come to this country and they're able to overcome poverty, they're over, able to kind of achieve middle class or upper middle class status through hard work, right? So kind of meritocratic um, idea and somehow they're culturally more, um, attuned to be able to do this. So that's another part. So all this is, this is the myth of the model minority, right? Because immigration allows only certain kinds of people to come over, um, in terms of from Asia. And so a lot of the, the 1965 immigrants, they were all highly educated and, and that's still the kind of continuous wave, although there are different classes, but the majority of the kind of model minority, the people that fall into that are, are East Asian, South Asian, and these are the, the kind of elites of those groups that come over here. So rather than thinking that there's something innate or inborn about Asians working hard and being able to, you know, be quote unquote smart and successful, that this is, this is a, a result of kind of immigration laws, right? And so, and, and of course, um, there's been research that shows that Asians actually have the biggest wealth um, disparities of all racial groups. So there are people that, people groups like, um, like Hmong and, and other um, Southeast Asian groups that, that end up on welfare because they are coming with less resources. And so there's, there's a big disparity actually within the Asian American um, moniker, which really encompasses a huge group of people that don't even share the same languages or cultures. So, so it's, um, yeah, it's really hard to kind of um, accept the model minority as truth, but then it's such a huge kind of myth that people really believe that Asians are getting mad, Asians are somehow hardworking. But of course, the, the downside of that is that Asians are competitive, they're taking over. So, <laughs> so even the model minority isn't all positive. Um, and also research or just, you know, just kind of how it came about was also to kind of be used as a wedge 
um, between whites and other minorities to look at, oh, well, if they can do it, if Asians can work hard, why do we need welfare? Why do we need, you know, affirmative action? Why do we need any of that? Because all you have to do is just work hard enough and you can achieve that. And so, so there's, it's a very complex myth, right? So I think I, this is something that I always have to teach my students as well, because people grow up with this myth as, as truth and they believe it. Even Asian Americans adopted themselves, but in fact, that it's a very it's a it's a dangerous myth on so many levels. So that's that's my minority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so code switching. Uh, well, there's uh, code switching is interesting because there's code switching in terms of between languages, like an Asian language and English. But the latest films, like um, Sorry to Bother You, and even the upcoming film Black Klansman, there's code switching even amongst like you know like African Americans going from quote unquote white sounding English to to more kind of community, black community English, right? So there's there's code switching in that sense too. But um, so that's 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 something we could talk about a little bit further. If you have questions about that, yeah. Wait, so and code then, codes yeah. refers okay. to language. Yes. So languages, um, but not necessarily different languages. It could be even within the same language, but different forms of that language, Got right? It. So. And then there is generations. So I, I said that I was 1.5 generations. So I came to the United States as a young immigrant uh, at age five. So between the ages of five and 12, you're approximately, you can call yourself 1.5 generation. First generation is an immigrant generation that comes at adulthood coming to this country. They're first generation um, Americans. So Asian Americans, Latinx, um, you know. Um, and then their second generation are the US born. Um, uh, children of the first generation immigrants and then their children become third generation and so on and so forth. Got it. Okay. Oh, so um, back to, you mentioned your students. What, what do you teach at Biola? So I teach, uh, I teach an Asian American studies course. I also teach a course on, you know, film and TV and racism and, and sexism. And then I teach also a research class. So that's super cool. Um, so you've written, I did a lot of internet stalking, you've written a ton of books, one of them being an encyclopedia on Asian American actors, and so, which I think is just so incredible to have assembled an encyclopedia, and how, can you talk about the process of that, and also how you kind of intend for it to be used? So it's, a, I, I, I just wrote the entry for uh, Asian American actors, but the entire, uh, encyclopedia is actually on Asian Americans. So yeah, so I was I was part of part of the, the assemblage of that. So to just kind of have a definitive form, you know, a, t- a definitive mm-hmm. volume on what it means to be Asian Americans. And I yeah, so I did research on Asian American actors to kind of highlight the, the, the people who come before this generation all the way back to, you know, like someone like Anna Mae Wong, um, and Sesui Hayakawa, who are in the silent era to to all the way to today. And so, yeah, so that was, um, it was really fun to kind of put that together. Mm-hmm. So it was on Asian American culture in general, the yes. encyclopedia. That's yeah, crazy. Sure. Um, yeah. So, and then your two other books that you wrote or co-wrote, um, are one is called without a trace and the other one is performing race, um, negotiating identity, which I thought were super provocative titles. And do you feel like these things are unique to the Asian American experience or is it just kind of to any immigrant? I think that there are overlaps with other immigrant um, 
populations for sure, but there are also uh, specificity with the with the Asian American, and again within the Asian American community, mm-hmm. there is also specificity with you know kind of uh, disaggregating the different the different immigrant groups and the different ethnic groups even within that. So it's it's very complicated, right? So when we try to generalize. There are things that I think are generalizable in order to kind of understand um, on a larger scale, but then we also have to take into account that there are differences. And with the Asian American population, um, I think the the idea of Asian American is is a political um, identity because immigrants come, they, you know, they're they're just like they're like we're Japanese, we're Chinese, and in fact that there's distrust even between those groups from kind of the homeland, mm-hmm. but then to come over here and all of a sudden become Asian American, it's, it's like a generational, it is a kind of a generational evolution. I feel like as 1.5, as second generation and beyond, people are more likely to identify as Asian American, but I don't think the first generation necessarily takes on that, that identity. And you did this, um, I think it's like a 10 year study tracking Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in media. And I was thinking, and like, I can't even think of maybe more than five movies that have an Asian American lead or a character at all. And can you talk about uh, what you found there? Like it, it says um, they don't, or yeah, how they compare to Western series in terms of numbers, screen time, uh, how stereotypes are depicted, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so we were looking specifically at television, which is doing a lot better, I think, than mm-hmm. what you were saying in terms of film, because we don't, yeah, I can barely think of any leads. And in fact, yeah. a lot of those leads are, are played by white actors, right? So that's, right. Oh my that's gosh, wasn't that like the Matt Damon movie recently? The like Great yes. Wall? Oh my goodness, that was the worst. Yeah, that was a white savior. I guess oh. there's the white savior and then there was the whitewashing, right? Where they write uh, write in basically a white, usually male savior of the entire kind of country of whatever mm-hmm. Asian country they choose. And in the Matt Damon example, that was China, where he kind of is the savior of China in the medieval medieval time. So it's interesting because there's, you know, there's arguments of, well, you know, uh, Game of Thrones is set in medieval Europe. There aren't any Asians or people of color there. But then you can put like Matt Damon in a medieval China because somehow, you know, he can he can make his way over to China. No problem. So there's definitely a kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, it can't even compare because it really is about, I guess, who gets to tell the story, right? Although mm-hmm. in that case, it's actually Zhang Yimou, who is a Chinese director. Um, but I guess it's this idea of what does Hollywood, what, what do American audiences want to see? And there is this misunderstanding, I think, um, that is perpetuated by the continual exclusion of people of color that Americans want to only see white male leads or maybe sometimes white female leads. Mm-hmm. but. But yeah, so that's that's I think that's the problem, right, in terms of representation. Um, so what we found in television is that um, ten years ago it was really really bad. We were under way underrepresented. Now we're, the numbers are better, but then we're excluded from majority of shows, right? So if the numbers are better, it's like we're all on one show, like fresh off the boat, right? Oh, fresh yeah, I was off just about boat. to say fresh off the boat. Right, if fresh off the boat gets canceled, I think we we found that. Um, Almost all of the uh, majority of the Asian Americans were concentrated on like, um, like, I think a, a handful of shows, like maybe 10, 10, 15 shows. Right. So if you were to cancel those shows, we disappear from television altogether. So um, and then we found that it's like shows set in cities that are high, highly populated with Asian Americans like Los Angeles, New York, that majority of those shows actually didn't have. 
um, Asian American regulars on those shows. So there's still this kind of segregation and, and we're missing. So if you're not watching, you know, Fresh Off the Boat, you may not be seeing an Asian American, but Fresh Off the Boat didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, there was um, All American Girl uh, that existed at one point in time, but that was 20 years, right, prior to Fresh Off the Boat. And that's, that's it's just kind of like the, the Joy Luck Club to Crazy Rich Asians. It's like we have this blip in history mm -hmm. and then we disappear for decades and then we reappear so we're hoping uh, the community is hoping that with crazy rich asians and these upcoming movies and television shows that it won't be a blip anymore but that it'll be a continuous representational stream so wh why do tv shows and movies differ in terms of diversity i think that there's more platforms for television right so now we have streaming uh, we have Netflix, we have Amazon, we even have Hulu now. And and those those streaming platforms have a different business model than broadcast television, right? So before, 10 years ago, really broadcast television, some some cable was, was coming in. But their, their goal, because of advertising, is to reach the largest uh, segment of audiences, mm -hmm. right? In their mind, that has always been the white audience. But with streaming, they're looking for niche audiences who may not be finding what they want to see on kind of mainstream broadcast television, but they're looking for special shows. So they might subscribe to something like Netflix in order to see something like uh, Master of None, you know, or, um, or uh, Orange is the New Black. So, so shows that are, that are not as represented on mainstream television. So I think with the advent of streaming platforms, there is an opening of, of additional shows that can um, that can reach audiences that haven't been reached before, and that means Asian Americans as well as audiences of other audiences of color can be seeing seeing themselves more in these shows. So I think that the competition and just kind of a proliferation of content. I mean, there is so many more shows on now than there were ten years ago. So I think that that's that's made a difference. And so you also studied um, relationships and stereotypes in these TV shows. And I was wondering if TV shows are doing an okay job of doing that, or is it still a matter, like, they're still perpetuating stereotypes and Asians only date other Asians? What do you think? Yeah, we haven't um, investigated that fully. It's uh, actually, even 10 years ago, there were interracial, there were some interracial, like, I think Sandra Oh was dating uh, a black doctor on um, Grey's Anatomy. So and then there are yeah there are interracial relationships but but I think that actually there's fewer and, and Lost was ten years ago as well which had the first kind of Korean American and well Korean couple that was on TV so I think that um, that there is there is m more um, interracial relationships as well as um, family sitcoms with Fresh Off the Boat and during our our, our follow up study also Dr Ken came on and Dr Ken is actually really significant, even though it was only on for a couple seasons, it, um, it actually showed a second generation and third generation family, right? Because Ken and um, Ken Jeong and Susie Nakamura played second generation native born or US born um, Asian Americans, and then their children were third generation, which is, which is actually brand new. I mean, there were so many firsts of that show, but I think that people just didn't really pay attention to Dr. Ken very much. Um, but it actually had, um, and they were, they were inter-ethnic. So he was Korean, he was Korean American and she played Japanese American, which the actors are. And they actually talked about that on the show. So, um, and actually in terms of food, they actually talked about like having different kinds of foods and Thanksgiving. So it was really interesting. Um, to be able to have that. And that's definitely an improvement from 
from 10 years ago and certainly from All American Girl when they had Uncle Ben's rice on, on set. And I think it really, because, you know, whoever was creating the, was building the set didn't have, like, they didn't have any knowledge of Asian food. So they mm-hmm. brought on, you know, parboiled rice. <laughs> and so I remember the actors, someone told me where they were like, really kind of like, it just, it just made the whole set seem like not authentic, even for the actors who are sitting there pretending to eat, you know, Uncle Ben's rice. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so you're talking about um, this Dr. Ken show, and so the they had second and third generation, and so it's not just that these people are playing their characters, but they're also playing their kind of cultural struggle. And so, what is the what is the way to represent that on TV? Like, what are these unique struggles that Western audiences might not be super familiar with? Yeah, so the episode where they talked about their ethnicity. Um, was passing that on to their children, but then they themselves may not have fully, they've already, they've assimilated as second generation, right? Mm. So the, the hilarity of that episode was that uh, Ken Jeong came on in a, in a hanbok, which is a Korean female dress. Mm-hmm. So, because to represent that, he really didn't really know what authentic <laughs> Korean culture was. So, so that was part of the joke, but I think that that kind of, um, uh, you know, that gimmick really was not just a gimmick, but it was showing that, yes, you know, second generation, we have this kind of guilt of, wow, how do we raise our children um, when our, when we maybe don't even speak the language anymore and the, the kind of traditions and cultures we kind of understand, but only superficially. So I think that that kind of struggle really was, um, was actually shown in the show, which, uh, which I, I feel like in, in Fresh Off the Boat, they also had a segment of that in terms of, you know, what Chinese New Year, you know, how do we pass on Chinese New Year? Because in Asian American culture in, in the United States, the, the kind of attrition rate of language is very high from first to second generation. By third generation, I think 90 some percent cannot speak their mother tongues anymore. Mm-hmm. So so this kind of attrition, I think, is 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 it, it's. It's unique between second and third generation because that that attrition is just kind of like weird. It's like, how do we pass on? How do I speak, you know, Mandarin to my kids when I can't even like survive in Asia myself? You totally, know? yeah. I'm speaking with sociologist and author Nancy Yuan. Meant to be eaten. We'll be right back after a short break. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Ancestry. You can savor your story in a whole new way with Ancestry DNA, and I'm excited to experience this firsthand. Thanks to Ancestry, I'm going to have the opportunity to find out more about my own heritage. I recently got an Ancestry DNA kit in the mail and immediately wanted to get the process started. However, the kit said saliva samples are best in the early morning before you eat or drink anything, so I waited until the next morning. Before even putting my contacts in, I opened the vial, switched my morning breath saliva in, and it felt super futuristic to pop down the blue liquid into my saliva sample and then shake it all around. I dropped it off at Bodega UPS point in the middle of a run. It was super convenient. To be quite honest, I don't know that I'll discover anything that surprising. My mom's family immigrated to Brooklyn from southern China, and my dad's from Hong Kong via England. However, I've heard that a lot of people find out that they have origins in the part of the world that they never expected. Ancestry DNA includes over 350 regions and two times the geographic detail of other DNA tests, so we'll see. By next week, I'll have my test results in hand, and I'll share what I found out about my ancestry. 
Tune in to find out if I'm 100% Chinese like I think I am, or if I discover something surprising in my family's history. We'll see how ancestry DNA helps me connect to the culture, cuisines, and traditions of my heritage in a deeper way. In the meantime, go to ancestry.com mtve. That's mtve as in meant to be eaten, to learn how ancestry can help you savor your own story. And so we were just talking about um, <laughs> this inability to pass on our own culture as second or third generation uh, Asian Americans. And um, yeah, this actually made me think of, you know, the idea of the, the banana, like, right? Like we're yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. Um, and I remember growing up um, on the playground, it was like, I was never white enough. You know, I just like wanted to blend in. I just wanted to eat a bologna sandwich and I just wanted to, you know, not have a stinky lunch. But then when I go home growing up now, it's like, am I Asian enough? You know, like, this is really sad. I won't be able to take my kids to dim sum or like when I take my friends to Chinese restaurants, it's like I still order in, Chi- in, in English. And so I was wondering how well, you are 1.5. So how do you kind of navigate these um, kind of cultural tensions. Yeah, so as 1.5, I, my my accent is right on, okay. but then my vocabulary is completely <laughs> like it's. I'm actually best with food and menus because mm-hmm. I think that's like more practiced over time. But anything like political or anything that's kind of takes schooling, actual schooling or living in that country, I'm completely kind of out of my element. But I do worry, I think about like, I am kind of the, the cultural translator. Every time we go to um, Chinese restaurants or whatever, or anything that requires more speaking, I'm the translator for my entire family. Um, I'm married to someone who's second generation. And so he has very little Chinese. And then my, my kids are, you know, I, I, I sometimes force them to just order in Mandarin just to, because I worry, I think like, oh my gosh, are they going to be able to get Taiwanese breakfast? Mm-hmm. You know, because there's no one, no one there really speaks English because mm-hmm. we're in the very, very authentic restaurants where really it's for the community. The people that work there aren't fluent in English. And so I think like, I, I worry, I think like, are they going to be able to access this food after I die? Like I think about things like, <laughs> so. What was that dish called? We don't know what it is. Yes, because they just yeah. always relied on me, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, and they'll, they'll say it in English or we'll make some, weird translation in English that's yeah, it's not like real translation. shrimp in rice and it's like that's like 50 different things thanks for nothing yeah the other day we played a alphabet game and we're like Chinese food right we're gonna do Chinese food and and, we, and when it came to H like uh my husband who's Cantonese he said hagao and which is <laughs> it's like it's not an H word but that's how you say it in Cantonese and mm-hmm. I guess the phoneticization would be H mm-hmm. and like no idea what that was. They have no idea what that was, right? And then I said it in Mandarin, and they still didn't know what that was, oh. right? And then we're like, you know, and then I tried to translate. I was like, you know that shrimp in the kind of translucent skin that we eat in this stuff? Because I don't know what the English is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think it's, I guess it's like shrimp dumpling, but that doesn't really capture it, right? Because there's so many shrimp dumplings totally. out there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was, um, I talked about this on the show before, but uh, I was really craving uh, like the Cantonese soup when I was sick, like those like different herbs and things. And so I went to this herb store in Chinatown and I know you have to use bitter almond and um, sweet almond, but then they're all just called almond on the package and they're like 40 different brands. I'll just say almond. So it was just kind of like, great, you know, like what if this is, at least I could kind of tell the difference, but what if it's something else that I will you know, maybe never be able to eat again because I have no clue what I'm buying. It's so hard. Like I think about, you know, I'm interested in Korean and Japanese food and I'll go to those 
markets and I'll try to guess based on what I've eaten at restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. and it's really, really hard. Um, and, and you kind of, and the dried form of things, right? If I, I want a translucent noodle, but I'm not sure what the dried form looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's just, but then it's, it's like what you said, it's like, I'm interested, right? And I want to know more. And yes, there's loss in translation, but I wish I had that knowledge rather than kind of a fear, like, oh, if I don't know that, then it must be bad or it must be gross, right? So I think that, um, that I think the benefit of growing up Asian American and in, you know, in kind of contact with different Asian cultures where the food, there's overlap and there's, um, there's just, you know, interest. And because I grew up with, I grew up pretty much in my Korean friends' households, I would go to their houses to eat. I kind of grew up with all these little dishes and sometimes I'll try to make my own. I think it's just this, it's really a great um, cross-cultural experience that I really appreciate being Asian American. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to TV. Um, we were talking about the strides that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, maybe strides is a, a bit of a stretch, but um, how about Asian food? How is it represented in media? I have this great, um, just seeing this on screen, for Fresh Off the Boat, there was this one scene where uh, Randall Park's character, Lewis, is washing a huge stock of bok choy in the sink. <laughs> and I saw that and I thought, oh my gosh, I've never seen that before on TV. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that is exactly how we do it, you know, because these vegetables are so big. You can't use a colander. I mean, I try because I'm just lazy. Um, but, um, but the best way to do it is to do it in the sink. And, and I think that it, that was, that was an amazing, that was so like such a huge kind of leap from the uncle Ben's rice on all American girl. And I thought, wow, you know, Asia America has finally arrived to be able to have, um, that kind of representation of food. And I think that food is so important in terms of authenticity because food is, I think across different classes, like everybody that I knew of that are Chinese American cares about food like it's the most important thing in the house, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, I, the idea that like food is medicinal, like if you're, you know, sick, you have to eat this kind of food, but you can't eat that kind of food because this one has heat and this one has, you know, <laughs> this one is cooling. Mm-hmm. So all that knowledge, I mean, I don't have that knowledge. This is another like growing up in the United States, but I felt like everybody in Asia just instinctively knows. I don't know. I don't think they teach that stuff in school, but they just know from, I think, growing up and being told things over time by their families, right? And so I think that that having that representation of just even having vegetables in the sink is is tremendous. But I would love to have, yeah, that this idea of like, yeah, after you know, after you give birth, you have to have this one month of, you know, eating particular foods and not all these kind of things that are traditional but also have health and medicinal. And I think that it's funny because I think Western culture will just you know, call it homeopathic, or they have all sorts of other fancy names for it, you know, whereas I think in Asia, it's just part of the culture. And I think that I haven't seen so much of that being represented, but something like Bao, I think is kind of the first um, food based uh, kind of Disney film that's like, really captures kind of how food and family are, are, are completely interwoven in ways that I think uh, maybe Western audiences don't fully understand because they're just like heating up some TV dinner or something or getting fast food. Whereas I think cooking and family and like I remember growing up wrapping dumplings with my grandma. That's just kind of have something that all kids do with their families if they, if, you know, if they cook things from scratch, which, you know, people in Asia do. And so I think that that's that's something that is, so seeing something like Bao is, is pretty tremendous. Yeah, I I want to talk about Bao, but 
first. Um, when I asked the question about food and media, I didn't even think about Fresh Off the Boat. The first thing I thought about was like, Bizarre Foods or um, like Phil, Phil Eats Everything, I think it's called, or like all those kind of travel shows and how um, even, even Ugly Delicious and how the protagonist goes to this country and they eat this slimy thing and it's like a matter of, you know, I conquered this. I ate this. It like it was kind of gross, but I ate it. And so why is that problematic? And why are we still watching TV like that? Oh, yeah, it's it's definitely a form of cultural appropriation. And I think that it's unfortunate that um, that Asia is always seen as this like land of strangeness and exotica and food is part of that. Right. And I think that um so it's like it's almost like those are like hunting hunting videos of, mm-hmm. of people going and like I got I got this you know this this is this tiger this exotic tiger oh I ate this you know exotic weird food and I think that it, and it's always like from a form of um, like someone who is in you know in positions of power and being able to kind of go and sit amongst like these these you know Asians that that are that are portrayed as as strange and other whereas it's 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 like that food is interesting and you conquer it but then when it's here in the united states it's seen as problematic or like ew you know gross so it's 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 this really interesting thing where it's like because it's so othered when it's in the united states it doesn't seem to be long because of these shows right when these shows it's like it's only in these weird places and then when it's here it just it's it doesn't seem like even when it's here it's still othered whereas you know, we can think of it as this is American food too, right? Mm-hmm. Because immigrants come and they bring food, and that's part of part of what American culture is evolving. I mean, what is American food? Like tacos are are now like I feel like are as much of American food that, as it is in Mexico. And so I think I, I mean I just ate I ate Taco Bell on the way to to coming <laughs> driving down to Mexico, and I was like, hey, I, I just joke like, oh well, this is like you know our first like entree into like Mexican food. I mean I knew it wasn't. It's totally Mexican American. I don't even know it's Mexican American. It's just American, right? It's just um, Taco Bell. Right, it's, 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 it's its own, it's its own thing. cuisine, yeah. <laughs> but it's so much a part of, um, like, yeah, it's a part of Americana, and so I think that for us to to and, and you know those articles about how um, how Asian and Mexican food like they're they're so inexpensive, so it's like I, I I've seen so many of those shows where they go to like uh, Asia and it's like they go to like like not fancy restaurants but like poor people, right? Or it's like. They're, they're making it right on a boat or something right? like those kind of mm-hmm. those kind of shows where um, and it just shows like I think it, it it diminishes at the same time. It doesn't honor the fact that it is everyday people's foods. Mm-hmm. I, I can't explain it. Does that make sense? It's like no, it's totally. everyday people's foods, but then it's seen as this exotic and like poor or something. And I and I think that they don't understand that food actually, I think, goes across different classes in Asia, that it's just such a important part of our lives that we don't see it as um, exotic, you know, and I think that it's it's unfortunate that that these food shows haven't really done justice to, I think, what Asian food and the the kind of um, different, so much variation in Asian food, and that Asian food should be seen on the same level as European food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, is there a way do you think for these shows to sensitively or sensibly portray? Um, Asian cultures foods or is it is it just a matter of like taking a step back and letting those people speak for themselves I think that ugly delicious um does an interesting job of I think interviewing and incorporating people of you know chefs that are of that country 
I haven't seen actually the Asian ones. I've only seen the European ones, but um, but I, I think that allowing people of that country or including people, Asian Americans, like to speak for their food themselves rather than just always this kind of, you know, outsider coming in who, who seems to have a kind of position of power, being able to comment and say, you know, I conquer this or ew or whatever, um, versus the people that actually live and breathe that food to be able to speak for themselves. So allowing, yeah, allowing kind of ownership and, and self-representation, right? Own stories of, um, of people who, who aren't going to exoticize it, who aren't going to talk down about it or talk about it in terms of like conquering because that is, you know, that's what they make. Mm-hmm. And so let's go back to Bao, which is actually how I find you or found you um, to our listeners. I found Nancy through an Instagram of a tweet <laughs> that you posted about Bao, so 21st century, and how you um, talked about how it actually made you cry because of how accurate the representation was. And I was so shocked by that. I was, you know, mindlessly scrolling and I, I actually went to go to YouTube and found all these super janky pirated bootleg clips of Bao just to, so I could see what this amazing representation was. And you're right, like it's it's actually close enough. And I was wondering can, if you can give a synopsis of the short and what about it made it so powerful for you? So it's, it's a really, um, I think, a, insider look into what a, a Chinese American family and it, with its specificity, I think can be extrapolated to other families as well. So it starts with, um, if I can remember, <laughs> it's a short be- before the Incredibles, right? So it's a Pixar short and the mother, there's a mother who is, um, making a bow, making bow from scratch. And then the bow comes to life. And then she it shows her actually, I think, it's like it becomes like a child and she takes care of it. She plays with it. They, you know, you see their kind of familial bond. And then the child starts to grow up and become like a teenager and have its rebellion. All the, this time, it's still a bow, which is a kind of interesting thing. Um, so you understand it's kind of like, you know, not realistic. Um, but then so then the bow goes up and then and then dates someone and leaves, wants to leave. And she takes the bow. And so this is the spoiler where she actually eats it. <laughs> and what I was seeing when I was watching in the in the theater, I I gasped along with other people. We're like, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> because it feels so cannibalistic and out of the out of the blue. Right? It's like, what is going on? And so right after I gasped, I just laughed. It just was so funny. It was it was it was like she ate it, and then you, you, it's like it's shocking, and then you all of a sudden you understand, mm-hmm. right? You understand that she loves this bow so much that she does not want the bow to leave and she is willing to eat it and so and then you see she's upset she's depressed and then you see the picture of her actual son who looks a lot like the bow and you realize the son has grown up and it's the story is really about the son it was a metaphor about the son moving away but the son actually comes back with his wife who is this blonde white woman and then they start to make bows together and, and you see that there's this kind of reconciliation at the end. And so you understand, oh, the bow was really just, you know, her kind of imagining of her entire kind of life with her son and missing him. So, so it was just a lovely story. And the kind of crying is just kind of the, the authenticity in the, the food and even the set. She had 
aluminum foil on the burners, which so many people I think I could I saw through social media could relate. You know, <laughs> this kind of like you know growing up with people who put aluminum foil on their burners to avoid to so the food because you know when we're making Asian food or ethnic food, or whatever it gets all over the place and you don't want it to fall in the stove, mm-hmm. so we put aluminum foil on that. So so things like that and just I think just seeing um, something that is so authentically Asian Asian American Asian. Um, that Asians can relate to, done in a Disney Pixar film, and having the the relationship and seeing the kind of um, relationship of what does it mean to have have your family grow up and leave you? Because in Asian cultures, uh, families typically, I mean, in Asia, people actually live in multi generational households. I grew up in Taiwan. My grandmother raised me, so I literally wasn't in a multi generational household. Even as my parents left and immigrated to the United States, I stayed with my grandmother. So. So the idea of like, and, and she was, you know, she was devastated by her children leaving and going away. And I, it made me think about that. You know, what, how did my grandmother feel, you know, when my father left for the United States? And, and I think that the immigration story is, is in there as well. And, and so I think it just, it just was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you said you gasped with the crowd, but it also left a lot of um, audience members very confused. Um, they were like, why is this cannibalistic? And I saw this other tweet that was like, this is confusing because white people like grow up with their families, leave at 18 and then dump your parents into a, a nursing home, which is like so awful. But it is like it is very culturally specific and it is really confusing to people that don't have that kind of empty nest syndrome thing that's unique to Chinese culture and so why yeah why why is this confusing and how how are non-Asian people to watch this and make sense of it yeah I think that I think that there are you know I don't want to generalize to all white families I'm sure there are white families that are also very close to their their children but I think that Overall, the United States, the Western culture is much more individualistic, right? So there is this idea that when when a child hits 18, they are to go out on their own, have their own lives. But in Asian cultures, you are family forever, and you sometimes don't leave. People, you know, kids stay in the house and live in the house until, and even if they have their own family, that family comes to live in the house. I mean, I grew up again, like with my father and my mother, and my grandparents. Like we all lived in one one household. So. I think that 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 kind of idea is very foreign to to um, to white culture in the United States. Um, but I think that other cultures can relate. I think that uh, Latinx how, uh, households can relate to this. A lot of immigrant traditional families, even European immigrants, that there are the the, the kind of um, traditional household and and, and African American households as well. Is I think that they can relate to the multi generational and the the closeness that. That people feel, and and again, because Asian cultures are collectivistic, we are much more communal, um, and generations are stick together, and that's part of the, the the kind of culture that's been in Asia for you know ever since you know Asia was at the beginnings of Asia. It is something that's much more familiar to Asian culture. So we we understood the kind of the kind of love um, that that could be so violent, right? I think that there was. Um, well, my father actually, you know, married my mother. There was jealousy between my, my grandmother and that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one time they actually, uh, my father and my mother, they lied to her and said that instead of, they, they told her they were going to work, but instead they took off work and had a date, which is like, so what in the in U.S. culture? Like, so what, right? But she got so mad that she made my father kneel, like, for, like, hours to punish oh. him for lying to her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
it's like it's like eating the dumpling yeah it's the same thing the violence yes the violent the violent love um it's so strong and it seems abusive i think too (laughs) abusive or violent you know or unrealistic to to other cultures but this happens this this absolutely happens Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining me nancy this is meant to be eaten on heritage radio network we'll be back at the same time next week Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.